Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. This is Dr. David Proden, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. Com. I learned a prison martial arts move from a high school student. So instead of putting your hands together to pray, fingertips to fingertips, you kind of put them back to back. And then you take your left hand and you push outward under the chin of who is in front of you. And when their chin goes back, then you take your right hand, deliver a punch to the throat. Hopefully I'll never have to do that, but um, apparently it's going to be good to know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I've got this this technique now. Um, I can actually see how it could work. So the student demonstrated in super slow motion how he was apprised of this knowledge. I don't know. I wasn't going to ask. So um, I have some new Twitter followers I'm actually getting quite a few new Twitter followers who are indie actors. So they're from independent films. And I was trying to figure out why is this happening? (laughs) I'm like, and I've linked it back to, um, I've taken a role as a consulting producer for an indie movie, uh, which will likely be filmed this summer. Um, But I am listed on IMBD on the database as this consulting producer and in publicity that's gone out with this, you know, rather higher profile indie movie um, because of the topic. So I think I'm getting these these actors who are like, hey, (laughs) would you cast me in these films? Um, And I'm like, I have no ability to do that. I'm not that's not my role in any of this. Um, So. But it is kind of funny uh, that I have all these indie actors. So I don't follow any of them back. Um, and, and they are all, you know, very sincere and have little clips they put of things that they've been in and, and stuff like that. So, um, but yes, yes. Um, once you become the consulting producer, um, people want to want to get considered for these parts. So I had... Um, Worked on my laptop yesterday, and I hadn't fired my laptop up for quite a while because mainly I'm just using, obviously, my system down here in the, in the studio or also using my phone. And now that I have the Samsung S9, you can do just about everything on the phone that you could do, you know, on a laptop. Um, so it's really not gotten a lot of use. And we have the family laptop, but, you know, my laptop, which was built... Um, very heavy duty. I mean, I had this like specifically commercially built with like, you know, solid state 
RAM and, and everything like that and hard drive. And um, because I intended to take it a lot of places, this, this kind of flows into the point where that was going to be the laptop I was going to write my book on or type my book on. So I'd be at the library and out in the woods or other places and, you know, I'll give an update on where that's at. But uh, anyway, I hadn't turned the laptop even on for a couple months, so <laughs> I fired it up and then had to go through like 18 new Windows updates. And for some reason, like even when I have the updates done, the laptop is um, is booting really slowly. And I went through the task menu and the boot menu and um, what's starting. And there's a lot of stuff starting, but I'm not sure exactly what it is that, um, and how crucial it is that it starts so I need to take it into our local computer person and uh, have her take a look at it because that laptop is, it's about two years old, but I mean, this thing was built super commercial. I think 16 gig of RAM and just everything. I mean, I paid thousands to have this thing built. Um, so it should be like loading like my desktop. You know, you turn it on and literally 30 seconds later, everything's up and you're set. So I'm not sure what's going on, but it is it is slow. Um, so something something weird is happening. Ran the old antivirus, checked the disk defragmentation. Nothing wrong there. So, um, but yeah, I have to drop it off and basically say, Deb, take a look at this thing and do what you have to do to make this thing boot up faster. Um, and I'm sure she will. So. Um, bought a headset, a Logitech, I think it was H390, and uh, did it off Amazon. It doesn't cost much, but I'm finding that when I do consulting, to come out and to put the microphone up, and then, you know, when I do wear the headphones, um, it just becomes a lot, especially the microphone blocks out your voice, and if you're trying to work with documents, that's the thing. Like I might have paper documents and I'm trying to get to my keyboard. And right now, you know, I can't see down where the keyboard is because the microphone's here. Um, so it just, it's ideal for podcasting or if I have to produce some kind of, um, you know, oral statement then um, for a response. But if I am just communicating with somebody, if I can have a headset, it is a ton easier. So that thing is remarkably well constructed for how little it cost, and it worked great. I was actually going to try to do a podcast with it, although I knew it wouldn't be the quality of what I'm getting out of my studio mic. So, you know, obviously didn't want to do that to you, the loyal listeners here at the Safety Doc Podcast. But this thing is pretty nifty, I have to admit. I'm, I'm pretty pleased with it, and it's going to give me that option then of um, – so much easier to work with my clients, just, you know, safety clients when we're doing consulting back and, and forth just with discussion, because then I can get to my keyboard and, you know, it's nothing that we're producing um, again. And I think I'm going to use it for um, participation in um, the Older Brother podcast where I'm a panel member. There's five or six of us, depending upon um, who shows up, but, uh, I think the headphone, the headset's going to make it easier too to kind of get on and, and do some, um, 
searching on the internet and doing a little more depth work while we're actually doing the show because topics come up and then, you know, somebody or a couple people can branch off and, and bring up some information on that and then say, oh, I just looked this up. I have a book deal. I have a publisher um, offered me a deal. Hey, we got a deal for you. But that was that was a couple of years ago. And I, I wrote most of the book, but then never turned it in by the deadline, which was a year ago. So, you know, when you miss the deadline by a year, that's a bad thing. But, I mean, I had I had communicated with the publisher and, and just said, you know, we're, we're not on the same page on this. Kind of like what we're – I wanted the book to go and where the publisher wanted to go. So all of a sudden I got contacted by the publisher um, about a, a week ago and basically said, you know, let's have a talk about the book. So – we had a talk and um, kind of ironed out the differences, which I feel really good on where things are at now. And the book is Lessons of Lore Manhattan. And I analyze the boat rescue from um, Battery Park, 500,000 people in nine hours, and how remarkably efficient and improbable that was. And there's been books that have come out, American Dunkirk and some others on, on that rescue. But I come at it from a, a different theoretical approach, which I think is the most accurate approach uh, or most accurate um, empirical support um, reasoning for why that happened, which really comes down to the transference dynamic, um, which means things that strongly influenced you uh, culturally or uh, from your family as you are growing up, um, that those things later in life predispose you to have certain reactions to certain things. And just to get into that a little bit, um, looking backwards from the average typical person who was rescued um, from lower Manhattan on 9-11, which would have been um, somebody working in the banking industry um, in the early 40s. That really that's, was kind of the profile. And there was, actually, there was a study that was um, done by the city of New York following the 9-11 attacks. And basically they identified who were the people that were rescued and, and impacted by these attacks by age, by profession, by how long they lived in the city, you know, distance from where the attacks occurred. So some really great data to look at. And it was Dr. Paul Rapp, head of military medicine, who um, helped me to go down that path and kind of deconstruct that to actually look at the people um, at the moment and then back and say, okay, when they were in their formative years of this transference dynamic, what was happening? And a few things that were happening. So, so I'm saying the fact that this rescue was so effective in that time, um, you know, of 2001, was due to in part, in large part, to this transference dynamic, and which meant that those people were living, um, growing up during the Cold War. So they had the Reagan Star Wars that was being talked about. They had um, the movie The Day After in 1983, 
um, there was, you know, the movie Red Dawn, just, you know, a lot about nuclear war, Soviets invasion, but this whole thing too of, um, you know, the, the government was there to protect us against a foreign or multiple foreign enemies. And today it's different because, um, you know, terrorism, ISIS spread out more nebulous, not really associated to a country always. Um, and if it is a country, it's a country that isn't going to, um, you know, uh, full scale take on the U S like Syria or something like that. Um, but back then, you know, of course it was the Soviet union, you know, maybe China to some extent, but mostly the Soviet union. So you had this, this fear, but then you also, um, were being told, you know, this is why we need a nuclear program, a nuclear missile program. This is why we need Star Wars. Um, so when 9-11 happened, uh, most of those people were raised during that time of being inculcated to completely trusting the government um, to defend them during an attack. So that played a big part, that transference dynamic. And I break down how that actually happens and how um, chaos and the Taurus T-U-R-U-S have talked about these in previous podcasts, but the fact that that was such a chaotic event actually was beneficial um, to the, the, the people who were rescued that day because it really took away other choices. Um, you had to pretty much you know, go to Battery Park and, and go out that way. You weren't getting off Manhattan any other way. Um, and the fact that this was so, you know, so visual and, and real, obviously real as intangible, you know, that you were seeing the smoke and everything, um, adds to that. So, um, so anyway, back to my decision to kind of ramp things up again and with, with getting the book published, it's always been kind of a hole in my game, you know, like people are like, well, what have you published? Well, I've had things, pieces published in professional journals and one just recently back in April, International Journal, um, you know, which are six to eight pages. And, and but that's kind of my style. You know, that is that's how I work um, is I usually put together that type of more technical writing in short pieces so to go and to put something together longer, um, it's not as easy for me. And I struggle with the transitions. And it's it's different though. Like if you're doing something in court, I can do like a court expert witness report that can be very long. And, you know, because you're not writing a story there, you're basically asking, answering questions more or less. Um, and then referencing all exhibits. So it gets, it's a completely different style of writing. Um, so you're, you're referencing things all the way down to like on, you know, an exhibit, whatever, page 22, line eight through line 11, you know, stuff like that. This was stated and then whatever. Um, so yeah, so there, you know, and I've got that style down. Like I, I, I've understand that. Um, but one thing, I don't do well is I can write the content and I know the content inside and out. 
and can you know get the citations down and everything like that. But it's kind of that transitioning between paragraph and paragraph or chapter to chapter, which I'm kind of like, here's this piece, here's this piece, here's this piece, here's this piece, and not transitioning very well. So that's where an editor comes in, really helpful. So the editor I was working with was also the editor. Um, So I had my own editor. And then, of course, that was one thing with the publishing house. More or less, they were telling me, well, when you get everything done, give it to us and then we'll give you feedback and we'll send it out for review and we'll put the cover and, you know, we'll take care of all of that. The problem with that is like, I'm more formative. Like I need people to look at it as I'm putting it together. Um, And not necessarily, you know, this isn't like a proofreading type thing, but it's like that they can smooth out those connections, those couplings, as the book is being developed. You know, it, I always laugh sometimes when I think of like these Mike, like Mike Tyson in a book he wrote or something. Nothing against Mike Tyson, but like I know Mike Tyson probably didn't write a book. And some, you know, some people it's like they obviously outsourced. They, you know, they they dictated it. Maybe they talked to somebody and then that person wrote down their thoughts and things like that. So they, they did that. So not, you know, it's not fraudulent or anything to that effect. Um, but you know, it, it's one of those things where I, I always get a kick out of that because I'm like, you didn't write that book. <laughs> um, you know, somebody got got your thoughts down and, and put that together for you. But, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But, you know, with this, obviously, um, I had an editor. And unfortunately, unfortunately um, my editor is got other projects going on and I hadn't done anything with the book, you know, for about a year. So I couldn't go back to the same editor and I needed to find a new editor, which I believe I have. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. And then, you know, I need to get down and, and just keep writing. And what, you know, it was funny because I, I read through what I wrote and I'm like, this is really good. It's just, it's a shame I didn't finish it. Um, so I need to go back in and get that done. Um, hard to write technical um, stuff at times and make it so it's understood by your target audience. And so it's not too technical um, working on that. And I do have, you know, a, the fiction uh, book past infringement, which I want to come back to. So these are all things within the next couple months. I want to carve some time out. Better time management. That's kind of the thing that the safety doc needs to to get down here. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. So, 
Um, I have in my garage floor a couple divots, more than a couple, quite a few. You just get those over time, especially in Wisconsin, because the you know the cold win- winters and and um, the summers, the expansions, and and then salt from the cars. And I patched some pretty significant er- eroded areas with a heavy epoxy gray concrete patch like three years ago, and that worked perfect. Like that stuff hasn't shown anywhere. So I'm going to go back to that same approach now for the other areas, which have kind of developed. And, and once I get those done, then I think that's probably it. <laughs> I don't think I'll be doing any more patching out there. Um, I think the floor will, will pretty much be in, in good shape. So um, wanted to wanted to talk about the suicides of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain because um, just with celebrity suicides, they on the surface, they don't make sense, right? Because you would think people would have money, um, so that wouldn't be a want, that they would have access to the resources for mental health, um, that that, you know, that would be there. So, so really what's going on? So I'm not here to dissect that, but it's just, it brought me forward to looking into some of the articles written about this, this phenomena of, of more or less an increase in suicides overall um, across all populations, um, all ages, age groups, and something that um, I'm, I'm wondering, like with Kate Spade, and I didn't know who Kate Spade was until the, her suicide I, you know, that she was a designer of purses and fashion. And, of course, Anthony Bourdain, I didn't know. Um, I'd watch him on, on TV. Um, but my question would be, do you accomplish your life goals and then reach some point in age, so Kate Spade being 55, Anthony Bourdain being 61, where you also realize, you know, for the most part, you're probably at your best years that you are going to, you know, start to, I I mean, obviously you're going to start slowing down, um, maybe have some health issues, but also like your drive to accomplish things. I mean, do you kind of just burn out on this? Do you say like, I've reached the summit, I'm here and I know the next steps are all down. And does that play into some kind of, you know, do you just, do you just kind of lose the passion to drive yourself? And, you know, does life become mundane or I, I don't know, but I, I think there's something to this because um, Aaron Clary wrote, in Return of Kings a couple years ago. And you can find him at captaincapitalism.blogspot.com. But Aaron wrote a piece about Buzz Aldrin. I'm just going to take a a short clip from that. And he wrote, Did you know Buzz Aldrin was an alcoholic? And after retiring, he fell into a severe depression. 
And after his divorce, his days consisted of drinking alone in his apartment, fetching KFC and booze until he entered rehab. So Aaron goes on to talk about how from the outside, it looked like Buzz had everything. You know, he had been to the moon. He was very intelligent. But once you start to break that down, it's, you know, he had had this major accomplishment in life, career accomplishment, that he wasn't going to return to that level of accomplishment, um, probably. And also the peers that you're with are gone. Like in that pioneering of working up towards something is is kind of gone. Um, and who can you really talk to about like being on the moon outside of a handful of people who have actually been on the moon? So it becomes one of these things too where because, you know, like for Buzz Aldrin, there was such a small peer group who could really relate to him. I think it became isolating. And Aaron, I believe, goes through that in the article. But I wonder with like a Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain if that doesn't happen too. For people atypical to what we would think of a profile of suicide, um, you know, which would be people, you know, who are um, severely in in debt, um, you know, o- overt um, depression, things like that. Not that these, not that depression things weren't there for Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain. I'm just saying, um, you would think that if you have those type of things, you're not going to consider suicide. I was also reading an article about Jamal Lewis, who's 38 years old. Jamal Lewis, you might remember, as being the running back for the Baltimore Ravens, who surpassed 2,000 yards, one of just a couple running backs to do that. And he talked about how he's considered suicide many times uh, since leaving the game due to injury. Um, and to this day, like he still feels the, you know, the physical pain of putting his body through that and also where sunglasses might have, you know, some, some brain probably does have some type of um, brain deterioration, you know, due to his playing years. But he also talks though in the article about once he left the stadium and not being in front of 70,000 cheering fans of how it was hard to motivate himself and how he became addicted to that level of adrenaline and feedback. And I think that is so common today in, you know, again, we, we become external with the social media feedback and the likes and things like that. And people are just so externally um, driven um, or, or validated in what a Facebook like means. But um, yeah, it, it really it really was a, a hard article to read because, like you know, I, re, I I didn't know that. Remember him in his playing days in that form. But um, of course, this isn't new. Like a number of athletes have reported when they leave the game, even if it's a game that doesn't involve. Um, you know, some kind of physical deterioration, you know, if, if they've played baseball or tennis or whatever, you know, it could be, um, that once they're out of that, 
the spotlight. And not that it's a selfish thing, but they're just so used to that. And one is it's the very r- routine-driven things, like here's you know, what you're doing on your Monday, Tuesday, and your conditioning and all of that. But um, being in front and performing for people, that it's really hard to adjust, very hard. Um, so there's been so many Facebook posts that also have related to Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, which then have for suicide help, you know, dial this number. And I, you know, I think, first of all, I don't think people typically call the numbers because they wouldn't want then what, you know, I don't know what would happen Do the police show up then at the house and do some type of counseling. Um, or does somebody automatically then get taken in for an evaluation and, you know, like it, does their insurance have to pay for that? Or then how does it, does it stay on some kind of record or does it impact, you know? So these are things I think people obviously think about and, and, and I don't know the answers to these and maybe those are the things that need to, to get out too is like, I think people don't reach out for help um, because they're afraid they're going to have these marks put on their records and the impact that that's going to have. So um, I think it's, you know, also if you look at um, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, I just wonder, you know, if they they also didn't want, they wanted to avoid having that label as having to have reached out and to gone into um, a mental health clinic or something like that. Um, I mean, we see that for people with drugs and alcohol, but it's m- mental health. I, I just don't remember it as much or don't, I can't think of it. I can't name it as much, but I think it would be, it would be hard because people would preface that like had Anthony Bourdain, um, you know, gone into a mental health clinic and people had, had known about it for, you know, 30 or 60 days. I think from this, that point forward, that would always kind of be prefaced at some point and is, you know, talking about Anthony Bourdain and yeah, he overcame or he's battling, you know, mental illness or suicidal ideation or whatever. And so I think those things come into play. And I I don't know again, how to, how to address those. I think I'm, I'm just saying what's in my mind right now. Um, is I, I don't think the the approaches are coming out to really come up with what would be an answer for this. So, hey, guess what? Today we are talking about pareidolia, what it means and why it's dangerous, okay? Pareidolia. Pareidolia. And at some point we're going to talk about apophenia. So... We've all had these experiences. All of us have had these experiences. So don't be like, what is this pareidolia? How do you get it? Whatever. We all have experienced pareidolia. We all have experienced apophenia. And we will continue to experience these things. And we probably experience them daily, if not, um, you know, on a weekly basis. So let's talk about this. So I'm going to use excerpts from an article, which is What Does Pareidolia Mean and Why Is It Dangerous by Summer Baratesky, 2012, from Psych Central. Okay, so pareidolia. 
the TV show Ghost Hunters, Zach Bagans, Ghost Hunters. So they go around and, you know, looking for, well, places, but, you know, obviously like Gettysburg and things like that. And then they they set up the cameras, um, all the equipment, the EVPs and the recordings and things like that. So right there, okay, they are priming with a context and a situation so it's ghost hunters, right? So if you're watching the show, it's persuasion, persuasion, not persuasion, persuasion. What are you expecting? Well, you're expecting that, you know, there's, if a door is creaking, that that door was moved by the hand of a spirit. When really it's just a door that had, you know, moved, um, had been bumped or whatever, and it's a creaking door. So it needs WD-40. You need to make a trip to the hardware store, not a trip down to the priest to have an exorcism. So, um, but pareidolia is um, an, another example, and then we're going to get into some definitions here. But take a that infamous, infamous face on Mars, where people see that that rock image, or people look at the moon and, and believe that they see a man on the moon. They see a face on the moon. And in the Japanese culture, uh, crab fishermen will pull up crabs, and some have what appears to be an image of an Asian warrior on the shell. So with an angry Asian warrior from, you know, centuries ago. And they will take these, and it's considered bad luck to harvest them, so they will throw them back. So what's happened over time is because those um, crabs have, have had that formation, they're actually thriving just because of that while you know the other crabs are being harvested. If these crabs that look like Asian warriors are, harv- are captured, they're typically released. So, but people look at these and they see this image of a warrior when really it's just that's the way that the shell's made. So from Wiktionary, okay, our good friends at Wiktionary, um, Pareidolia is the tendency to interpret a vague stimulus as something known to the observer, such as interpreting marks on Mars as canals, seeing shapes in clouds, or hearing hidden messages in reversed music. Okay, so you're it's you're interpreting things that um, might be happening, but you're giving you're assigning meaning to them when there isn't meaning. It's just things like you know what was that that i heard in in the breeze like what was that well that you know someone was calling my name no it's just it's the wind going through the leaves so that's just all it was um but we are all enabled and we are all limited by our senses okay and your senses will deceive you and your senses will fluctuate um sometimes your your senses will be functioning better than other times you know whether you have a cold or, um, you know, whether, you, whether you're tired or whatever it might be, but um, your senses will deceive you. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. 
Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. So, pareidolia involves the perception of images or sounds in random stimuli. Again, um, we, I, I remember doing this in college. It was outside of the student center where they sold the books and the T-shirts and jackets. Um, they had this elevated concrete area, and I was just l- chilling out there one day and um, laying, looking up at the clouds, not at the sun. That's a bad idea. Um, but looking at the clouds and just kind of trying to th- think what the clouds look like, if there were any shapes, any similarities. Now, you know, that was, you know, maybe this cloud looks like a bear, or maybe this cloud looks like a person, or this cloud looks like a truck. So that's pareidolia, okay, that, that you're, you're seeing these things. Now, there's a little bit of a difference in that, though. Like, you see that, but, like, I recognize that this does not really have the, a meaning like I, I'm assigning this because the the mind is trying to make patterns of things and especially faces like you'll typically see faces in things. Um, so it's like the burnt toast that look like Jesus and didn't that sell for like eighteen thousand dollars or something on eBay something crazy. Um, I remember a incident uh, where I was serving as a critical uh, debriefer after a young lady had perished in a recreational accident. And as we were debriefing the event, the hospital staff um, had said that when they they took the sheet that this young lady, um, the, the bed sheet, so again, it was a traumatic recreational accident um, she was killed that the the sheet the blood on the sheet um, looked like a heart like it was a shape of a heart and that the um, hospital staff had interpreted that as meaning that this and and the pastor who was there that this was some indication of peace for this this lady um and, you know, that's, again, that's pareidolia. That's seeing the blood stain in the shape of a heart and then going that step further, which will kind of get into, you know, assigning meaning or more of this apophenia, but um, of saying, well, that, that, was, that was a communication that had a message of peace. So, again, it's, there's two things here. One is with pareidolia is if you're seeing things, like you see a face in things or you, you hear certain sounds or whatever. But if you, if you recognize that those things are just your senses playing quote-unquote tricks on you um, or that your mind 
You know, it's actually a, a sign of a very functional mind to to try to put things into patterns. It's, that's very normal, but also to be very cognizant of like this is just a random blood stain, and it's not a sign um, of peace that this young lady is at peace. So we seek to create meaning when meaning is absent. I, I suppose, right? And perhaps it's no danger to see a teddy bear in the clouds or a man on the moon. Those are functional, whimsical, harmless things. So, you know. Um, But pareidolia can be dangerous sometimes, especially when it gets religious or political. You know, the Jesus on a toast is one thing. Um, If a rusty water stain dripping down the front facade of a public courthouse um, you know, looks like it is in the form of Jesus and people come flocking and inter, you know, interrupt the activities there. Um, that can be something else. You know, the Mayan calendar, people reading into um, that as the end of time and maybe taking other symbols like, um, you know, very unsettled economic times and stock market up and down and, um, you know, high rates of, of divorce and, you know, depression, anxiety, whatever, things happening, uh, earthquakes, um, hurricanes, and, and people then linking all of these things, which don't aren't linked together, okay, there aren't connections between these, but they're making these connections, and then that becomes what's called this apophenia, which we'll talk about more. Or that's when you can start to take this one pattern in, in through pareidolia and link it into other things which aren't really happening, but saying, yeah, the Mayan calendar is totally right because look at all these other things that are happening and look at the severity of the, the hurricanes and look at the stock market crash and the housing bubble and all of these things and student loan. And I mean, you can throw like everything into it um, and saying, yep, this is this. these are all coming together, definitely signs the world is going to end. Um, pareidolia isn't again just about seeing faces. It's it's this interpret. It's about interpreting any vague stimulus as being meaningful. Okay, so here's here's a prime example. You feel sick, okay, and you look online, which is one of the worst things that you can do. Out of the you know tens of thousands of websites. And you try to match your condition. So let's say it's a stomach ache or a headache or something like that. Um, You match your conditions to what's found on the web. And suddenly you have, you know, you've matched six out of 12 symptoms of whatever disease. Okay. Now, maybe three of these symptoms is one is fatigue, um, you know, one is headache. And another one is, you know, loss of appetite. Okay. Well, I mean, those things alone are pretty common with most people at some times, you know. So, um, but anyway, this is where you're determined that you, you know, pareidolia is, is, is wanting, it's self-fulfilling once you get into this with illness. So, again, that's where doctors will say, come in and be checked out by the doctor, and the doctor can determine the proper diagnose, 
diagnostics versus trying to self-diagnose because you'll be able to self-diagnose yourself with almost anything if you want it bad enough because you'll just agree yes 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 i agree yes this and usually you know the of course these websites the symptoms out there are so broad and bland and part of it is you know to try to get you to ask your doctor prescribe me this medication so um whatever but um not everything in the world has meaning. That's something that we just have to come to terms with. Um, not everything has meaning. So we need to distinguish when we're uncovering meaning from when we're constructing it, okay? Not everything has meaning. So, you know, again, um, let's just say if, if something, you know, if, if you wake up in the morning at 5.55, what is the meaning behind that? What, what meaning does that have? Why did you wake up? Why 5.55? Well, there's no meaning to it unless, you know, the alarm clock maybe that you set the alarm clock. That's one thing. But let's just say you woke up and you look at 5.55. Well, why did I wake up? Why did my body, my body chemistry arouse me to wake up at this time? Why? What's the meaning behind that was, you know? And it's like, no, like you can... You can literally, you can go insane trying to break this down into finding a meaning when it's just, that's the time you woke up. And maybe that's just because a certain amount of light was coming into the room at that time. That's, a, you know, the time your your body, you know, cycled through with, you know, whatever into your bloodstream to, to help you to wake up or what. It's just, it's, you know, and it was affected maybe by something you ate the previous night or some exercise you did that had that specific time versus being five minutes earlier, five minutes later, something like that. Or maybe it was a car driving by that had honked the horn or an engine starting up or something like that. Or the newspaper person, you know, coming by and with us, it was whip the newspaper up and it hits the steel siding and you can hear thunk. So um, what really helps here is you need to apply logic, okay? You need to apply logic and always ask yourself, does this make sense? Does this make sense that this is happening? Does this make sense? Um, you know, it's like if the tornado, if if the tornado siren went off right now, okay, and it, it tornado siren is sounding, and I'm like, everything. Does this make sense? Like there wasn't anything in the forecast. It's sunny outside. I mean, of course, things like you know, things freak things like that can still happen. But does this make sense? Um, or is it just, you know, a false alarm? Is this somehow it got triggered and, you know, they shut it down? So it's that question. Does this make sense? You have to apply that logic. And usually if you apply that, lo- if you apply logic, does this make sense? Um, then you're, you're going to, to right away say, yeah, this, this doesn't make sense. Um, and other times, you know, things, you are going to read correct meaning into things, you know, like if there are, are people around you that you're not perceiving as, you know, that you're in a safe environment anymore, you know, like they're separating you from an exit or something like that. Well, yeah, I mean, then you're authentically in a compromised position. So you've identified that. But uh, again, these things, um, you know, like seeing images and clouds around 
pieces of bread or whatever. So um, this is where member checks can really help you out, member checks. So between 1915 and 1924, Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, Harvey Firestone, and John Burroughs call themselves the Four Vagabonds. They embarked on a series of summer camping trips. Okay, so they were all, um, so Ford, Edison, Firestone, you know, multimillionaire moguls, powerful. John Burroughs, a naturalist, but also like the the top, you know. Um, so they go out and basically this is, it's kind of like a member. Well, it is a member check for these guys. And they're recognizing, this is the point too, like if, if they're sitting, so first of all, a member check is basically uh, where you fully trust a small group of peers to give you honest feedback. And they might tell you you're, you're right on with something, that you're, you're off or something um, to that effect. And it can hit your ego really hard, but you want people to do that. And then you need to also step up and stop when something is really dysfunctional for someone where you're the member feedback, you know, like someone who is making really bad decisions in, in their life. Um, and, and and that person, you know, doesn't, of, of course, the thing with a member check is the the person receiving the member check, this is big in research. Like you, you, you do your research and then you get it out to other people in the field who have that similar knowledge base of what you have. It's not like an editor or anything. It's just like, does this make sense? Like what I'm coming up with in conclusion, what am I missing? And then they're like, this is good and you know, whatever. Or they'll say like, I, I'm not following your argument with this theory and I, I don't think it supports whatever. And, it, and this could be like, you built like your whole thing on this theory but it does. It, you can't. It's not making sense to them, or maybe to a couple of your member feedback. So then you have to take that and decide what you're going to do with it. And if these are people who you really trust in the field, then you're probably going to adjust what you're doing. So, but again, this member feedback. But the member f- feedback. See, this was 1915 to 1924. So they're going to have this baseline too. They're going to know the changes that are happening. So if Henry Ford all of a sudden, you know, after after a couple of years, they're going out, and Henry Ford is like. Um, you know, yeah, I, I, I went and, um, I was pretty sure that, you know, like I, I saw, um, I, you know, I I saw my image down by the river and, uh, you know, I, I saw like, you know, three other people and I heard, you know, voices, um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure whatever, or, and yeah, you know, I, I have this, yeah hot dog I, I made here. <laughs> I think hot dogs were after that, but yeah, like my, my steak, you know, my steak looks like Julius Caesar. Like, don't you guys think so? And they're like, dude, whoa, like what's going on here? Um, so, you know, those types of, those types of things or else, you know, where, where someone is perceiving, you know, what's really not happening to, you know, like if Harvey Firestone is saying, like, you know, every time I go out, everyone is, is angry with me and they're upset and whatever and things like this. And, you know, the others are like, well, why do you say that? Like, we don't we don't see that. Like, we're out with you, too, and we don't see it. So why do you say that? And it could just, again, be, um, you know, where that person's perception isn't accurate. And you can tell, like, again, um, this par- pareidolia 
if that starts to really go into overdrive, um, you know the person's baseline and, and you can tell them, like, <laughs> especially the person that gets convinced that their house is haunted or this this is the next step that usually happens is apophenia. Apophenia. So apophenia can be considered as a, a blessing as well as a curse. It is because of this tendency that we can explore new things, okay, but sometimes it may mislead us. It stems from the fact that we humans are always looking for meaning in our life, of course. We often believe that everything happens for a reason. Well, most times it could be that things are totally unrelated, and yet we won't let go of our relentless pursuit to find a connection. That's apophenia. It's never an epiphany moment of awareness of new knowledge. So apophenia isn't like you suddenly learn, like, oh, yeah, like, you know, if we put highway systems in, um, you know, then we're, we're going to be able to get to places faster. Plus, we're going to have more demand for our products, you know, between Ford and Edison and Firestone, you know, Ford making the cars and Edison, you know, lights and electrical and lighting systems for roads and Firestone. And John Bros is like, hey, what are you guys talking about there? Like, we want to keep the land as pristine as we can. So at that point, he's probably not real happy. But um, think about this. So apophenia, though, is you get up in the morning, it's 5.55, okay? The the first phone number that calls you, like the last three digits are 555. Um, you pass a car that has three fives on the license plate. You arrive, you know, um, to work five minutes early, okay? You know, maybe you realize that you have 555 messages in your spam folder, but all of these things are just coincidence, okay? This isn't some message that is being communicated to you. But people will start to question this stuff. They'll be like, ooh, like, um, you know, if we hear the lucky number, if you were born at a certain time on a certain date, you know, I was born at five minutes to five on May 5th. So 55 is my lucky number. Yeah, whatever. It, you know, <laughs> every number has a chance just like any other number. Um, but you you can go crazy trying to read into these types of things, Okay. Um, and that's apophenia and there's, so apophenia, the, the formal definition is it's a spontaneous perception of connections and meaningfulness of unrelated phenomena. So the things I talked about were unrelated time you got up, time you got to work, the spam in your email, the cars, the term was coined by German neurologist and psychiatrist, Klaus Conrad. Conrad focused on the finding of abnormal meaning of significance in random experiences by psychotic people. Okay, first off, I don't think that you need to be psychotic to have apophenia. I think you can also just be very aware of your environment and that your brain is very good at patterning, but you have to then recognize um, with apophenia um, that it is not authentic. So you could recognize that all of these these weird coincidences have happened throughout the day. Okay, you could do that. And it's just like, okay, but they're weird coincidences. And smile and go on with it. Not sit home and then, you know, go out and buy lottery tickets with 15, 25, 45, 55, Powerball, 55, whatever. So apophenia is well documented as a rationalization for gambling. Gamblers may imagine that they see patterns on the numbers that appear in lotteries, 
card games, or roulette wheels. So a variation of apophenia is actually known as gambler's fallacy. And so it's one of the big addictions of gambling isn't the, the thrill of winning. It's that the gambler believes that they have somehow figured out the pattern. They've cracked the code or they're very close to cracking the code um, when no code exists, when no pattern exists. When that roulette wheel, every spin is going to be completely unique in its odds. Nothing builds in that. So uh, there was one comment to this article, and I'm going to read that comment. The com- here, we're, here we go. This was very, very good. I was just commenting to someone today about days when Perdilia seems high with me. While Rorschach attempted one diagnostic with the ink blots, I think Pareidolia, because the willingness to frame meaning where it isn't existing with intent, comes from within without being asked, what do you see? I think testing for Pareidolia could greatly benefit some people. I liked your focus on panic attacks. Well, I don't have them. Whatever. But anyway, um, this person was talking about the Rorschach test. So that's a little bit different than genuine paradelia. Paradelia is is spontaneous. Like you hear your voice in the wind, okay, or you see this image in the clouds. Rorschach is the, the ink blots where you are given that and then you have to try to make some interpretation off of that. So that's being very guided. That's that's more of like a directed paradolia. Um, so, yeah. Um, so this person goes on to say, I was saying earlier today that, gee, we people see faces and things where there really is no face. What else in our lives might we be reading into? So that's a good point. You know, like what else, what else do you read into? And, and do you get to a point where if you have chronic apophenia and, you know, I guess anyone could have this, but where you're, you're trying to come up with this meaning of, of what does this mean? Or, or um, sometimes I think this happens when people believe that they are being bullied sometimes, or also um, people who, who just believe people are, are looking at them or very negative toward them or perceiving um, like Facebook because of, of people's post. Like if someone posts that they're on vacation and I'm not on vacation, that, you know, that's a slight against me. And every time they're posting, it's like sticking a dagger in me of like, hey, you're not on vacation and I'm on vacation. It's like, no, that person is just posting their Facebook pictures. And I'm not on Facebook anyway. But um, but this is, this is one of those things where chronic apophenia, I mean, somebody could link that and then link it back to also, I mean, all these weird things like I'm not a great parent because I'm not giving my kids experience to take these trips that this other family is taking and all of these things and look at their clothes and look at, you know, they took a picture of what they cooked and I'm just, I'm in, they're in such great shape and I'm not working. I mean, all of these things like you can link together and then um, it becomes anxiety, neurosis, and you have this perpetual cortisol level. You're almost in fight and flight mode all the time. So I think people like with chronic apophenia, they just burn themselves out. Literally like burn chemi- their chemical soup burns themselves out. Like they can't take it anymore. So in closing, hey, I want to thank John Grant and the 405 Media for airing the show. John Grant and the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California. Thank you very much for listening to the Safety Doc Podcast. Stay safe, everybody. 
This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Broden on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.